waiting to hear that intro. Yeah. It is hard. Yeah. Different without that melody playing. Yes, it is. Praise God. Praise God for his holiness, his, his glory. We, we are in that season of Thanksgiving. Um, and uh, the entire month. And one of the things that, that uh, occurred to me and, and uh, I was thinking about is, as uh, Chris was up here, um, and I wanted to uh, uh, kind of challenge y'all that when you're in the grocery stores, when you're in, you know, wherever you're at doing your daily thing, that you would um, wish somebody a happy Thanksgiving just to see the result. And that way it'll give you a chance to... to uh, um, express why it is that this is the season of Thanksgiving. Just like after November 24th, this year the 23rd, every day after that you can say Merry Christmas and people know what you're thinking. We're in that season. Well, same thing with Thanksgiving. Um, it's sad that so many people have moved on from, from Halloween to Christmas. You know, Black Friday sales took place starting yesterday. It's like, no, no, I won't be involved in that. Um, but it's it's earlier and earlier, and uh, people are crazy. Oh, uh, I apologize, Miss Melinda. What did we do? Uh, did you you know what? This, is, this has been on for a while, so I may uh, I may need somebody to run down and get me some uh, double A's. As uh, we've got some right here. Are they good? Yeah, I think I'm going to swap these out right now before we really get going so that I can uh, take these down. So that you don't fade. So I don't fade in the middle of it. We'll see if those are good. We're just about to find out. So pardon the technical difficulties and the faster stupidities. Okay, it says three bars, so we're good. All right, there we, there we go. It is that time of Thanksgiving. And so for those who are on the, in the interweb, um, you know, when we have things that are not normal, we're very um, ordered creatures, and some of us more than others, we like certain things to go into certain patterns, and when they don't, it kind of messes us up. And uh, especially when you're flighty to begin with. So we are in that season of Thanksgiving, and uh, and you that are listening online, maybe um, take up that challenge. Wish somebody a happy Thanksgiving, and then explain and express why we even have Thanksgiving. We're one of the few countries that do this. Um, I was watching a video, and I was seeing that uh, people from other countries um, that have no idea what Thanksgiving is all about, because they don't know our history. They don't know what happened. And they don't know our God for the most part. And so it's an opportunity to open up the gospel. It's an opportunity to share with people why we should be thankful. Uh, and we should be thankful to the person of God. Not to some unthinking uh, and some weird process that caused everything to be, but an actual creator who created the heavens and the earth and gave us something to be thankful for. And we just happen to be in a place where, um, as we fall, um, it, uh, there's a thing called serendipity, and I don't believe in it, but it is nice and amazing to be in a season of Thanksgiving of November and be able to be in, in the, some of the most rich 
in amazing places in the Old Testament that speak of the Messiah. We're going to get steeped in it for the next few chapters. And, and Isaiah just is uh, uh, being led by the Spirit, uh, being a prophet of God at that time, being the prophet who was speaking on behalf of God, and God speaking directly to him, or through him, excuse me, to him and through him, I guess you would say. Um, because when you look at this, where we're going to be at here in Isaiah chapter 50, one of the things that you have to look at is we're in a time of, of uh, life, if you will, where people say, what is your pronouns, right? We're in a day of pronouns. Um, you know, and my pronouns are forgiven and redeemed. They call me forgiven and redeemed. Um, but... Uh, since, uh, seriously, the, I mean, we're, we're in a place where God is speaking through Isaiah. He's speaking of a future time as if it's already passed. We've gone over this over the last several chapters. But it's important because now we're, we're going to see, we get another um, proclamation that is given by God in the first person personal. He's speaking in the first person. He's speaking in the I and me, and mine. And it's important to take note of that because it's not just Isaiah who's prophesying these things. This is God speaking through, directly him, through him. And it is the second person of the triune being that we call God. And how do we know this? Well, it's Yahweh. There's a difference between um, where uh, Paul, or excuse me, Isaiah starts uh, speaking, um, and he references the Lord God, you'll see in your uh, different translations, and that's Adonai Elohim, or Adonai El. But when this, uh, this, this uh, God starts speaking in the eyes and the mind and the mean, in those first person, uh, personal pronouns, it is Yahweh. There's a distinction, and we need to be aware of that. So, here we're going to be dealing with a little bit about divorce, which Kind of sounds weird, but it, it is. It's it's a it's a rhetorical thing that God uses. It's a tool and a device that is literary that God uses uh, for His people. And one of the things that we're going to look at is those. Um, what does the Bible say about divorce? And that's not going to be our focus, but it's going to be the start because that's how this opens. And as I've said before, whenever. The Bible records for us, thus says the Lord. That is something to really pay attention to. That is God speaking directly. That is one of those places where I can, I can look and read the Bible and say, when it says, thus says the Lord, I can take that as, this is God speaking. I need to listen up. Unlike when I see people on YouTube or Facebook or any of these other social media sites that say, God told me. And I have to go... Now I've got to listen to see if God really told you that. And nine times out of ten, it's like, no. No, I don't think God told you that. And once in a while, it's like, okay, I can see that. might be possible. But most of the time, it's not. But here's one of those places where we get to really grasp onto it and say, okay, this is God speaking. And when God speaks, people listen. When God speaks, we should listen. When God is speaking, and we know that it's him speaking directly, in this case it's Yahweh, 
uh, we know that we should be paying close attention. And so this is where we're at, and I want to begin in a weird place. I want to begin in Deuteronomy. Um, I know we're in Isaiah 50. We'll be going through 1 through 3, the three short uh, verses. Um, but there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff here. And I want to begin by reading Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And why do I want to do that? Well, if you remember Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy was the um, reiteration of the law. It was basically Leviticus all over again, only in more detail, in different details, different things. And it had some more different history because it's further along than where Leviticus was. And so in Deuteronomy, you have a reiteration of the law. And in the law, God is speaking through Moses, and he's telling them, this is um, how you deal with divorce. And it's important. We're in a time, starting back in the 60s and the 70s, when California <coughs> began granting divorces just because. No-fault divorce and stuff like that. Um, they really began to defy God. The courts did. Because what God has said through Christ is what God has put together, let no one tear asunder. He said it's permanent. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is how God intends it. This is what God designed. This is what God has decreed. You don't wander from that. And we have as a nation. And unfortunately, it has creeped into the church. Because we have so many people that are involved in their own feelings, and that's all they care about. They don't care about the commitment. They don't care about their vows. They're focused more on a, uh, a celebration, if you will, on an event, than they are in the entirety of their commitment that they've made. And so marriage has been kind of, um, uh, it's been purposely, um, looked at as something that uh, um, that is not a good thing. And in fact, you find all these different uh, um, blogs, these young men who have no clue biblically of what marriage is about. They've been so tainted by the world and they've been so tainted by everything that, that is negative and, to be honest, they've been brutalized by Western society. Young men have. They've been beaten. They've been called names. They've been, uh, they've been um, not to mention they've been feminized. Um, and that started in school. Most of us guys don't learn by sitting in a desk all still. We're not women. We're boys. We have just tons of energy, and our minds are going all over the place, and we learn in different ways. And in, um, in today's society, if a kid doesn't, isn't able to sit down and listen in a desk some, uh, somewhat, um, they, they call mom and dad and say, hey, he can't, he can't be still. He can't listen. He can't, he can't learn. So we're suggesting you put him on some kind of drug. And then that really screws up little Johnny. So young men, are, are marriage is an important thing. And unfortunately, I, I would love to be able to talk to some of these young men and say, this is what marriage is intended to be. This is how God intended it. And this is how God intended for men to be. Because they say that, they, they have this attitude that uh, men are basically dogs. We're meant to procreate, but by that they mean with multiple partners throughout our lifetime. It's just normal, and it's a good manly thing. No, it's not. 
It's not a good manly thing. It goes against manhood. Because when you think about it, uh, one of the things that I agree with uh, um, Jordan Peterson, I don't agree with him on a lot of things, but a lot of things that I do, one of the things is men are supposed to be dangerous. We're supposed to be able to be, when needed to, that button that needs to be pushed sometimes to protect those who are more vulnerable. And that means by means, sometimes by means of violence. That's the way God made us. We're protectors naturally. And when we're taught that, we know how to control that. And it's the same thing with our sexuality. Men need to be more disciplined. And the real discipline in the real man is a man who can give his heart and his body and his mind and his whole being to his wife for 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 years. That's a man. That's a man who stuck it out. That's a man who did what was manly. That's a man who did what men are called to do. It's not a guy who just is out there, you know, hopping from one person to the other. That's not a man. That's not much more than an animal. That's horrible. So marriage is an important thing. It's the way that God is intended and what he's designed. And what God has put together that no man put us under, those are the words of the Lord. So in Deuteronomy 24, when it talks about divorce, it's a serious matter. And so this is what God has said. Um, and, and I know this is kind of a funny way to, or not the normal way to begin with Isaiah 50. Normally we would start there, and we will read that, but I wanted to begin with this. Because it says in Deuteronomy, this was the law that God had given to his people. Okay? And this is what they had to move, had to meet in order for a divorce to take place. It says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 24, it says this in Deuteronomy. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, uh, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of, of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. That is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now one of the things that I want to, um, um, before we read the other, uh, in, in chapter 50, the, the three verses. Notice that he said, if it's found some indecency in her. We're not exactly sure what that means, but that sounds like there's, there's like some corruption. There's something that's not right. So it's not just a willy-nilly, hey, I don't like the way she cooked. Girl can't cook, so, you know, I need to eat. So, yeah, she's gone. It isn't she burnt my toast. There's some indecency. There's something... And it's, it's, it's uh, the uh, word there uh, leans towards the idea that there's something immoral. There's some moral problem. And so it's not just that, hey, you know, she's no longer pretty in my eyes. I just saw another one, and, and she's prettier, and so that's the one I want. It's not that. 
it, it was a serious deal, and it was the man who had the exclusive right to be able to divorce. Women did not have the right to divorce. And that's one of the problems in society today, is women have been given that power, and now they just willy-nilly, I'm not happy anymore. You don't, you don't make me happy. It's like, well, that was never my job. You being happy is your business. Me being happy and satisfied is my business. You don't make me happy. I'm a, I decide to be happy or I decide not to be happy. I'm in control of that. And when they have these, when they when they give this, it's it's caused a lot of the problems in our country. And it's caused a lot of problems in society. And that's crept all over the world. And so that's that's an issue that that uh, the the law says no. This was the this is the way that God intended it. Now remember, it is the law. We're not under the law anymore. And praise God for that, because we couldn't keep it. We would fail, right? Um, but that's one of the things that I wanted to start with. So let's read these first three uh, verses here in chapter fifty, because they're um, they're important and they do speak of this this idea of divorce. So it begins with those. Uh, Four words, thus says the Lord, or thus says Yahweh. He asks a question, and it's a rhetorical one. Where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Now remember, he is um, answering the question that was previously asked by the, or that would be previously asked, I know that sounds weird, that would be previously asked. He's in that time of Isaiah, he's speaking of a future time, but in the tense that's being used, it's present, as if it's already happened. Because with God, that's the way that he works. He's already seen it happen, it's already happened, and he knows of it. So, he asks that question, where is the certificate of divorce? by which I have sent your mother away. And he's answering them. Remember that they said in the previous one, who are all these children? Where did they come from? Who had them for us? How is it that they're here and filling us now? When we were held captive, when we were, they sent them away and they did away with our children. How, how is it that we have? He's answering these questions of their doubt because doubt was going to creep in because of all the years that they had to spend in Babylon. And if you remember, that was 70 plus years that they were away from Jerusalem. So in that time, they had grown to doubt and to question God. And so he's answering their question, saying, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions, your mother was sent away. Um, verse two, and then he says, why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I not or no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have uh, revealed this to us. 
We thank you that you are the, uh, the God of all creation and that uh, you're the God of your people and that you're the God of the living and not the God of the dead. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the living God and the only God that there is and there is no other. We acknowledge that in this place and we thank you. We pray, Lord, that you would just continue to open up our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts to these truths that we may know you, that we may be able to better uh, preach the gospel because we know you. And uh, Lord, how we thank you that, uh, that you are the all-wise, the all-knowing, the ever-present, and the uh, all-seeing and all-knowing and hearing one. We thank you that you are that God who is uh, beyond what we can think or imagine. We thank you, Lord, for everything. We praise you, we bless you, in Jesus' name, have your way amongst us. So, he begins with these questions, these series of questions, and Israel, the people of Israel, are likened to a wife, a husband who has a wife. And we're going to see that, that here the indictment is, God knows the guilt of his people. And he doesn't hide the fact. But he also doesn't hide the fact, as we're going to see as we go on further, he also hides, um, he does not hide the fact that he still indeed does love his bride, his wife. And even though she's gone astray, she's gone after all these things, um, he still is going to interact with her. And so the question that is here is, is before it says, where is the certificate of divorce? by which I have sent your mother away. We're in a time right now with everything that's going on in Israel where I see more and more and more, and we're talking more and more and more, and really diabolical um, videos that people put out that um, are very, very um, anti-Semitic. And it's growing. And it's getting worse. Um, and that's not by chance. Yes, it is the work of the enemy, but it's, it's also the hearts of people. It also shows the depravity of men. It shows the hatred. And I'm not just talking about people who of a different faith. I'm talking about people that I come across all the time on social media sites who call themselves Christians and have this visceral hatred, this... Um, it's, it's almost indescribable because they have this hatred for this people. And it just, it's irrational. It doesn't make any sense when you really start to look at it and think about it. And if you try to, to reason with them, they're, they're unreasonable. They just go on with all their, you know, talking points and all these other things. And there's this really hate, this real hatred for this people. And so you, uh, here you have, uh, what I'm saying is that a lot of people say, well, there's uh, Israel no longer matters. God's no longer dealing with them at all. And, and, uh, and the church is now Israel. It's like, well, no. The church is part of Israel. The church, as it says in the New Testament, we're the true Israel. The real Israel. And what we mean by that, what the Bible means by that is those who take God at his word. We're like Abraham. We just take God at his word. It's not by works. And, and one of the distinctions that I've made in the, in the Bible studies, and, 
And uh, I don't know if I've done it here, but one of the things that I do want to uh, make sure that is clear is Judaism is dead. Judaism cannot save you. And those that want to practice that, I'm sorry, but your boat has sailed. Your Messiah has come. And his name is Jesus. As much as you don't want to accept that, that's the truth. And Jesus claimed to be that one who was fulfilled, um, who would fulfill all the things spoken in the Old Testament about the Messiah to come the first time. He's not going to come the first time when he returns. He's going to come a second time, and it's not going to be what you expect. And so, so there's. I understand some of the <coughs> distrust. I understand when I read some of the things that some Jewish people say about our Lord, it angers me. I'm not going to lie. And it does make me very angry. When I see videos of women um, who are visiting the nation of Israel and who are preaching the gospel on the street, and I see these males, I'm not even going to call them men, these uh, Hasidic or these uh, um, ultra- Orthodox Jewish men or males and they have their boys with them and they're up spitting slapping and trying to um, uh, shut down a, uh, a person that's preaching the gospel and especially when it's a woman because you think that they'd be going no we don't do that with women okay, we protect them we don't do this and instead they're teaching them the opposite and they're almost encouraging it and it's pathetic and it gets gets me angry. Like, that's my sister in Christ. And all she's trying to do is tell you to repent of your sin. To repent of your unbelief. To repent of your denial and your rejection of your Messiah and receive him and be made whole. That's all she's doing. She loves them enough to do that. But, God, but Jesus said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. Because they did hate him. Right? And they still do. And so he says, where is the certificate of, of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Now, the question is, did God divorce Israel once and for all? And we're going to see that later on, but we're also going to see, uh, we'll, we'll reconcile all these things in a, in a few minutes here. And then he asked the question, or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquity. The point is, what God is saying, what Yahweh is saying is, look, the captivity and all the stuff that you went through, the judgment that you went through, it's because of your fault. You brought this on yourself. And it fits with the very next thing that he says, when you think about it. So he's saying and explaining to them, it, you were sold for your iniquities. And for your transgression, your mother was sent away. He's saying it was because of you. You're the guilty party, not me. I'm not the guilty party, you are. And in spite of that, God's love overrides. Doesn't put away, and doesn't pretend that it didn't happen. He acknowledges it. This is who you are. But God's love is greater. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem who were taken into the Babylon exile are here figuratively described as God's wife. And uh, I've put in the, uh, Jeremiah 3, 1 through 8, if you read that, Jeremiah talks about that. 
he talks about the divorce that is spoken of, and it's in your bulletins, it should be anyways. Um, had the Lord issued such a divorce, he could not have taken Israel back. So that's why God is asking this question. Where, where is it? Where's her certificate? The point being, they had to give her, if they divorced according to the law, they had to give her a certificate. Put it in her hand. That said, I'm divorced. This man's divorcing. And so God is asking that question. Yahweh is asking that question to his people. Where, where's the certificate? Where is it? Show me. It doesn't exist. Um, Leopold, um, one of the uh, commentaries that I use, Leopold says this in his commentary, and he asks this question. He says, looking at Israel's present plight in her captivity, this is talking about the Babylonian captivity, is it thinkable that this all came about because the Lord, as a hot-tempered husband, casts off his wife and finalizes the trans uh, transaction by a writ of divorcement? Impossible. Leopold says, of course not. Or is it possible that the Lord was in debt to someone and unable to pay and had to resort to the sale of the very members of his family in order to meet his obligations? That's ridiculous. Who would be, who would, who would God be indebted to? God has no debtors. He doesn't need to borrow from anybody. And that's the point. That's the point that's being asked here. It's ridiculous, in other words. The scripture is telling us concerning his people, it's ridiculous this idea that someone had been divorced, according to God. And then he goes on to say, this is Leopold, he says, such an assumption is equally out of place. Israel brought its misery on itself. She has not been overtaken by some heavy doom. She misconstrued the Lord's share in what has transpired. In other words, she was the one that was, uh, if you remember in a, a previous chapter, the Israelites say, the Lord has, he has forsaken us. He has forgotten about us. He doesn't remember us anymore. They feel like they're divorced. They feel like God has abandoned them. And so God is asking this question. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's just a, a, a question that he's asking in such a way that it's rhetorical. And yet he's saying, well, where's the certificate? Show me that. When did I finalize this deal? And then he goes on to say in verse 2, he says, why was there no man when I came? And when I called, why was there no one to answer? Now that's an important thing to remember um, because where God is speaking here now and uh, speaking of those things, he says, he says this um, in the pulpit commentary, it reads as following. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? Such being the conditions of things, Judah, having rejected me, not I, them, why, when I came and announced deliverance from Babylon, was there no response? Why did no champion appear? Is it that my power was doubted, that it was feared, my hand was shortened, so that it, it could not redeem or deliver? But I am he who has power with his rebuke to dry up the sea, 
and make rivers the wilderness. And that's what he goes on to say. The idea here is God is now saying, he says, where's the certificate? You know, where's my debtors? Where's the people who I, de uh, I owe a debt to? Produce them if you can. You're not going to be able to. Never. Because God owes no one anything. Right? God is the one who rules everything. And then he goes on to say, he says, why, why was there no man? Why didn't anybody respond to the problem? Why didn't somebody stand up and say, God is still with us. God is not against us. This has happened because of who we are, because of what we've done, and how we've violated him. We're his wife, we're his bride, and we've gone whoring after other idols. That's the picture that's being drawn here. We say there was no one that did that. No one responded. Isaiah is warning them over and over again. God sends his prophet one after the other. And even in the time of Jesus, he was proclaiming in the streets. He was going from city to city to city, there in Jerusalem, there in, in uh, Caesarea, there in all those different places where he was at. And there was no one that responded except those he had called. This is the same thing. Um, and he's asking that question, why was there no one when I came? And when I called, why was there no one to answer? Hmm. And it's because of their unbelief. This is what unbelief does. This is why it's so important and imperative for us as believers to not fall into unbelief, to not doubt God. Believe that he is with us. Believe that he's for you. Believe that he's not against you. When he disciplines, believe that he loves you. Because he wouldn't discipline you otherwise. Whether it's in your conscience, or whether it's in life, the reality of your life, and, and things that, that happen, understand that it's because God loves. He disciplines those whom he loves. And this is an important thing. And he asks that question, why was there no one to answer? Nobody responded. I gave you the warning. And I told you the hope that you have in me, but you still don't listen. Instead, you're saying... Well, God has forgotten us. He's forsaken us. He's divorced us. We're no longer his. He says nonsense. And then he says this. Is my hand so short that I cannot ransom? Now the implication there is they needed to be ransomed. Right? They needed a deliverer. And essentially he says, I, I, I got the money, y'all. I don't need credit. I got what's necessary to pay for this. And as we're going to see in the following in the following verses, in the next verses uh, from four and on, it's very specific. These are very messianic portions of Scripture. And notice, when I came, when I called, it's not necessarily Isaiah speaking, but it's Yahweh speaking through Isaiah. And then he asks that question. Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom, or have I no power to deliver? And remember their history. What had God done in the history of Israel? He brought them and delivered them out of Israel, out of slavery. He delivered them through 40 years in the wilderness. He brought them to a country that wasn't theirs, and a foreign people that he gave the land to them, 
and he did all these things, and he performed all these wonders. He followed them in the cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He parted the waters. He did all those things. And yet he says, is my hand so short that it cannot ransom, or have I no power to deliver? He's reminding them of all the things that he has done. To finish what, the, what I was reading in the pulpit commentary, um, he says, but am I he who has no power with his rebuke? Who has the power with his rebuke to drive the sea? To make rivers a wilderness? In fact, to change the course of nature as seems good to him and accomplish his will against all obstacles. That's what he does. God is so in control of everything, including nature, that Peter at one time could come out of a boat in the middle of a storm and walk on water. That's not natural. That's supernatural. As we're going through numbers, we're going to see that out of this rock, God brings forth living water. He has the power to override nature. He doesn't have to stay within the realm of natural law because he's in control. And that's his point. Does don't have the power to do these things. And when he says, behold, I draw up the sea with my rebuke, think of Israel passing through the Red Sea. That's what he's saying. He said, didn't I do that? I just gave one blast, as Moses says, one blast of his nostrils. And the east wind blew. That's just his nostril. That's just a little puff. And he says, I, I drive the sea with my rebuke. He says, I make the rivers a wilderness. <coughs> Not only so that they're dry, but there's no longer any water there. I can do that. He says, I just speak it, and it is. Then he goes even further and uses this graphic language. He says, I, I can do that so much so that the fish that's left behind, because there's no water, it implies the idea that it's immediate. It doesn't have to be over time. We always want to try to explain the miracles of God in some natural way that we can understand. Well, there's a reason why they call them miracles. <laughs> there's a reason why we call them supernatural. They're not natural. And here he's saying, I can do that. And if the fish are left behind and they are left and they start to stink, it's because they don't have any water. And if you ever smell rotting fish, not funny. It's not a good smell. Now, some people eat that stuff. They put them in cans and <laughs> that's crazy. They do. He says, is my hand shortened? Is my power less than this? Can anyone suppose this? Surely what have I um, what I have once done I can do again. If delivered from Egypt, I can redeem you from Babylon. That's the, the commentary. And in the Benson commentary, he has another good uh, notation here. Uh, it says, the general accusation delivered in the last words, how he pro proves uh, by particular instances, when I came, there was no man, how it comes to pass that when I sent to you by my servants, the prophets, there was no man that regarded my message, an offer of grace and complied with my will. Was there no one to do that? And the answer is no. He was offering grace, and they were, no. They wouldn't respond. 
whereby he implies that the gener generality of the Jews were guilty of gross infidelity and obstinate disobedience, and therefore might justly be rejected. What Benson is saying is, if God did divorce them, it would be credited to their disobedience. They would deserve it, is what Benson was saying. And then he says, when I called them to repentance and reformation, there was none to come. None to come at my call or to obey my commands. And then he goes further and he says this. He says, I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Those are words of apocalyptic speech. They're talking directly about the judgments of God as he pours them out. And I put in your, your uh, um, bulletins, I think I put like seven or eight different references where you can go, and it's just one verse, and some of them maybe two verses, but you can actually read the chapter and see and put it into context how these things work. In some cases, he's talking about uh, through one of the prophets to Egypt. He says, prophesy to Egypt. This is what's going to happen. Very same kind of a language. I'm going to judge you, and this is what you're going to see. The skies are going to be like darkness. The, um, they're they're going to be covered like, like sackcloth is their covering. The sun and the moon will no longer give their light. Things like that, he says. In some cases, it was the Israelites that he was talking to, and in other cases, it was other, other nations. But regardless, it's always the language of God's judgment. When it comes, that's what it seems like. Is it literal? Well, it could be, because it's God we're dealing with. Is it figurative? For sure, it is figurative. It's a way of God expressing that when he's displeased with somebody, this is what it will be like. And imagine being in, a, in an instance where, um, and, and I think the Holy Spirit is at work here behind the scenes, and he is busy writing into these things another day of darkness that took place because of their disobedience. Because of our disobedience. A day of darkness that we call Good Friday. When in the middle of the day, like today, like right now, that sun shining through, the, through this side um, of the stained glass through the doors, they're blinding me right now. It's so bright. And in that kind of a light, it was taken away and it was darkened. As Christ was crucified on the cross. It would seem like judgment had come. And it did. And in that case, it was a reality. Whether it was an eclipse or what took place, we don't know. We only know that historically, there are some historians that wrote about that day, and they say, hey, for about three hours, it got really dark during the day. We're not sure what happened. But it did. And it was when the light of the world was being extinguished. That's what was taking place. And God uses this same language throughout Scripture to, um, to remind when he does judge, this is how it's going to be. It's going to be like darkness. It's going to be like even the sun is, even though the sun is shining, uh, sometimes the apocalyptic 
you think about all these uh, times of war, and you have all these clouds of these bombs being exploded, and what happens to the sun? It darkens because of all the smoke and all the things that happen. These horrible industrial things. It gets dark because of the sun is hidden. And it's not behind clouds. He's saying it, but he does cover it in, in such a way that at times that's what it seems like. So has God divorced um, Israel? I, I want to read this one passage from Revelation chapter 6. Because it's it is more than likely speaking of a time in the future. And as God is dealing with people on the earth as what uh, um, Isaiah calls earth dwellers, not believers, but those who have rejected God, who are godless and lawless, in Revelation 6, chapter 12, verse uh, 12 through 17, it reads as following. This is John. This is what he saw. Uh, in the spirit, and that's an important thing to think about when you're reading through Revelation. He's in the spirit. He says in verse 12 of chapter 6 of Revelation, he says, I look, I looked when he broke the sixth, sixth seal, this is an angel, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky will split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in caves and among rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. The wrath of the Lamb. That's a heck of a picture to get a grasp hold of. When you think of a lamb. It's like a lamb gets angry. It's written here because we understand that the Lamb is the one who was sacrificed on the cross. And then he says, For the great day of their wrath has come, who is able to stand? This is the idea that God uh, uses when he judges. Uh, like he did in Egypt in the plague of darkness. They had that, that plague. And you, if you remember from Exodus, when those plagues came, if you remember about that darkness what it said there, that it was palpable. You could feel it. It was so dark. And it was the same thing at the cross. People felt it. It wasn't just a visual thing. You could feel it, the darkness. Um, in Revelation, is that, uh, um, that he is always capable of controlling all the natural phenomena. For all of nature is under his control. So I want to go back and focus back on Israel for a moment. Because I think it's important how we think about Israel. And I think one of the best places to go there is in the New Testament. So in Romans chapter 11, I want us 
spend a little bit of time there because Paul has uh, an idea. And with all due respect to, to uh, um, people who have a different view, um, here's what Paul says. He's an apostle. He was handpicked by Christ. He was taught three years in Arabia by Jesus. I think I'm going to go with what Paul says, not what popular pastors or teachers or whatever say. This is what Paul talks about, and he's speaking specifically about Israel. So how should we think about Israel? Well, I think we should think what Paul says he believes is going to happen. Right? And it's like this. In Romans chapter 11, he says this, because he's speaking specifically about Israel. Even though Israel has rejected the prophets. And remember, he's talking in a New Testament time. He's saying everything that the prophets said, they should have received, and they should have accepted, and they should have received Christ, but they didn't. They rejected it. In the previous Romans chapter 10, you can read that on your own. Here it says in chapter 11, he says, I say then, verse 1, chapter 11, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passages about Elijah, when he pleads with God against Israel? Now notice he goes to the Old Testament. He's speaking specifically of Elijah. He says, Lord, they have killed thy prophets. This is when evil Jezebel and that rotten king Ahab were in power. And he abdicated his position. And this evil woman was threatening the people of God. He says, Lord, they have killed thy prophets. They have torn down thine altars. And I alone am left. They are seeking my life. He's lonely. He's just had the most amazing uh, event happen on Mount Carmel, where he challenged uh, 250 of the, or I think it's 450 of the uh, uh, other uh, worshipers of Baal, and God thoroughly destroyed them, and he hacked them to death. And now he's worried about this woman coming after him. He says, I'm alone, all by myself, there's no one else. But what does it say in verse 4? What is, what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, God has chosen 7,000 men. Men of God. Men who fear God. Men who trust God. Men who seek God. Men who know that God is God. That he is the God of Israel. And he says in verse 5, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. There's one of those things that our Arminian brothers, sisters hate, but I'm sorry, this is what Paul wrote. It's according to God's gracious choice. That's election. God has chosen to save certain people, even within the nation of Israel. Not all, but some. Then he says in verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. That's why I said Judaism will only lead you to hell. All it can do. A 
a third temple or no third temple, doesn't matter. In fact, that would be spitting in God's face, building another temple. It would be an abomination. If you think about it. It's telling God he's a liar. That he's not sent his Messiah. And that Jesus is not resetting us. And that his sacrifice was unacceptable. If they build that third temple and want to go back to sacrifices, I don't think that it's going to happen. But I could be wrong. God allows all kinds of crazy things to happen. It may be the final nail in their coffin. I don't know. But hear what Paul is saying. But if it's by grace that he's given this gracious choice, not to people, but God has made the gracious choice. He says if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? That which Israel is seeking for it, it has not uh, obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. That's not my language, y'all. That's, that's what it says in Scripture. Those are the words that Paul uses. Klektos. They're the elect. God has chosen to do this. So, that's why I believe it. And by the way, to those uh, on the interweb that, that teach that if you just read through the book of Romans on your own, that no one would naturally come to the understanding that God is the one who sovereignly elects. I'm sorry, but it's just the opposite. It's truth for me. The more that I read through that, the more that I came to the conclusion it has to be God. Because this is what Paul seemed to be teaching over and over again, whether we like it or not. And then he says, um, but those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were hardened. You mean God hardens people? Yeah. He does. And he can. And he will. And no one can be bring an uh, accusation against him. Who's going to bring an accusation against God? Can you imagine? Like, hey, that's what the language says. That's what it says in the Greek. In the Greek it says chosen. In the Greek it says hardened. God will harden. And he's not talking about nations here. He's talking about individuals. Right? And then he says in verse 8, Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not down to this very day. He's talking about his fellow Jews. Was Paul an anti-Semite? No. <laughs> no. He's just preaching and writing and teaching truth. This is God we're talking about. Not man. And so he says, down to this very day. And by the way, you can find that in Isaiah 29. If you remember from our study. Isaiah 29 is where it says that specifically. And then David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. That's in Psalm 69, 22 and 23. That's David speaking about the unbeliever, about the one who refuses to believe God. Then he says in verse 11, I say then, and this is in Romans 11, verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. 
But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgression be riches for the world, and their future be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? What is he saying? What is he expecting? He has an expectation. Then he says in verse 13, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, for if their rejection by the reconciliation of the world, or excuse me, for if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, talking to Gentiles, were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But you are arrogant. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. What about that fact? What about the fact that there were branches that were broken off so that I could be brought in? Well, he answers that. He says, you will say then this. He says, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold, then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted um, contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, verse 25, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fulfillment of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Christ has already come. Christ has already given his life on the cross. And he's talking about Israel. Paul was expecting for God to still not... Um, stay silent concerning Israel. And so that's why I went there. And why uh, You can finish reading the rest of, of chapter 11 and, and forward and read chapter 10 as well. But I want us to have a clear understanding that according to what Paul believed, and with all due respect to post-millennialists and amillennialists and everyone else, God, according to Paul, 
expectation to deal with Israel in a different world, in a different way. I believe that there's only one Israel, by the way. And we're part of that if we are truly believers in Christ. Because we have been, according to Paul, grafted into that tree. And we grow from the root. The root is what feeds us. What is the root? We're coming to a time next month when we're going to focus on that when we do our Jesse tree. A stump that was dead is going to spring forth a living branch. And we are grafted into that. That's what Paul is teaching. There's one Israel. There's not two Israels. There's not a former Israel and now we're a new Israel. There's only one Israel. There's only ever been one Israel. And that is those like Abraham who believe God and take him at his word. And it's important for us to believe that and understand that. And like I said before, there's a lot of awful stuff that is said by Jewish disbelievers in Jesus. Awful stuff that is written in their stuff, in their Mishnah. Terrible things. I understand why Martin Luther had this visceral reaction. I understand why people like that um, have these thoughts. Because they're talking about our Lord. And what they don't know is they're talking, they're talking about their own Lord, only they've rejected him. But let's continue to pray for the peace in Jerusalem. For the peace, the greater peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding. That they would all come to know Jesus is the Christ. That he is the one. And this is the way that we ought to think about Israel today. In its current state. The way that Paul did. Hey, God's not done with it. He's still going to use them. I don't know if he's going to use them as a nation like he did in the past. I don't know how that works out. I just know this is what Paul teaches. And we can't ignore that. And we can't let other people's visceral hatred, even those who call themselves child of, ch children of the king, we can't let that disrupt what Paul says, what Jesus has said what the Lord has said. Because thus says the Lord, I have not forgotten you, and I have not forsaken you. I will never forsake you. That's the way that God deals with his people. And we are part of Israel. There's only one Israel. And I think it's important at this time with all the unrest, with all the disinformation, the misinformation, the directed misinformation, and all the visceral hatred that's out there. We counter the enemy. We understand those are the schemes of the enemy. And we counter that with love. Because even there, we understand that we're to love our enemies. We're to bless them who persecute us. We're to pray for them. If they're hungry, give them food. If they're thirsty, give them water. Do the supernatural. This is how God says that we're to deal with these and so pray for the peace in Jerusalem, for sure. But also pray for the peace in, uh, for the uh, uh, Palestinian Arabs. They're not really Palestinians. Um, one of the things that have, I've come across with is you're going to see videos, and I talked about this on Wednesday night, videos, I think I did, 
videos of uh, uh, Bibles that were found from 1709. And what is so important about that? Well, they show a, a picture of the Holy Land. And it says, Holy Land, Palestine. They say, see, that proves that this land belongs to them. It's like, no. Because if you want to go back to 1709, fine. I'll see your bet, and I'll raise you. I'll go back further another two, three, four thousand years than what the Bible says, and where God uses the language and calls that land Israel. It's Israel. That's who he gave it to. Those people. It belongs to them. Whether we like it or not, that's the way that it is. And we should believe what the Bible says. Jesus himself called it Israel. The land. Paul called it Israel. In the Old Testament, it's called Israel. So we should see the land as what it is. And by the way, the, the land that they have right now, that's not even the fullness. They've never uh, met the borders that God called out in the book of Exodus. When you go and see the borders, they actually should have more of the land. Some of it they've never occupied. Some of it they've never cultivated. Maybe that's our portion. I don't know. It's a curious thing. The point is, believe what the Bible says about it. Don't get caught up in all the rhetoric and all the stuff. Just say, well, the Bible seems to... And Paul is an apostle. And with all due respect to all the pastors and teachers, and I respect so much, I have so much respect for some of the people that I listen to, and I just have to say, well... I'm sorry, but you're you. This is Paul. I'm going to go back to Paul and stick with what he says. This is what he taught. And he's an apostle. And there are no more apostles, regardless of how many people want to steal that title. And there are no women apostles, for sure. So stop that nonsense. Stop following these people that, that are doing that. There are no apostles. And there's really no need for prophets today. Although sometimes I wish we had some. Tell us what was really going on. The bottom line is God is the one who loves. He says, I'm not going to forsake you. I didn't give you a divorce. Because then I couldn't take you back. That's the point of this passage. It's rhetoric. He's saying, there's no certificate. Where's it at? Show me. Can they produce it? No. He says, look, you turn from me, and I allowed that for I'm going to take you back. In fact, we're going to find out in Isaiah 50, the rest of it, he says in the in very future tense, i got some plans for you. I'm not done with you. And they're plans for good, for your good, not plans for evil. Praise God for that. That's how we should think about Israel and the state of Israel and all the things that are going on today. I hope that made all sense to you. So with that, let's, uh, let's close in prayer, and then we'll... Uh, See if we can do our last song without messing it up. <laughs> Father, how we thank you. We thank you for your love, Lord. We thank you for that uh, uh, future uh, feast that is coming. Um, we thank you for the marriage supper of the Lamb that is promised. We thank you that one day we will be with you. And we will. Um, there will be no need for a temple because you will be that temple. 
Jesus, there won't be a need for the sun or the moon, as it says. Is that literal? I know that it's possible. For in you, you are life. You are the source of life. And you're pure life. And there is no darkness or shadow in you. And Lord, I thank you. I thank you that we can trust you. I thank you that you've given us your word so that we can understand how we should think and understand how we should view the world and the things that are going on. And even though you know us, how wicked and evil and sinful that we are. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your kindness towards us that we don't deserve. It is so undeserved by us. We thank you for your graciousness, for your compassion. We thank you that you are that compassionate God who loves his people. We thank you that you call us the apple of your eye and that you have written us in the palm of your hands. We thank you for this language that speaks such tenderness and wonder of our God and King, Creator. Thank you, Lord, for everything. I pray that you would just, just um, pile, this, pile drive this into our hearts and our minds so that we can tell others and be filled with your Spirit, the power of your Holy Spirit, to tell them of the Gospel, the good news, that Mashiach has come, and that they can believe in him and trust him. They can be saved and redeemed. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we bless you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.